first of all, thank you very much for having me on your show. It's a great pleasure. The the issue with uh, the misrepresentation of uh, of Palestinian resistance is not is not new, and in my opinion, uh, really, no matter what Palestinians do or do not do, uh, mainstream media, commercial, corporate media will never really present them in a positive light. So it's really not it's not the method of resistance that Palestinians choose to apply in their struggle against Israel, but rather the fact that they are going to be demonized uh, regardless of all of this. The fact is, uh, this has been going on for such a long time, meaning the popular resistance and nonviolent resistance. Uh, in Palestinian history, this goes back to over a century. It's nothing new. The Palestinian uprising of 1936 to 1939, which started with a six-month strike that showed all of Palestine in the face of British colonialism and and the Zionist uh, settlements at the time really indicates the level of the, the, the heightened level of political consciousness and organization and mobilization that Palestinian society had that very, very early on in the process. And I don't think it was a discontinued process either uh, throughout the years. The uh, uh, non-violent popular mobilization has really defined the Palestinian struggle, most notably during the first intifada of 1987 to 1993, six, seven years of continued mobilization, collective resistance of all sorts of creative forms that was launched by the Palestinian people throughout uh, Palestine. This generation that's right now amassing at the Gaza border kind of really carries on with the legacy of their ancestors. Uh, but they are doing it in, in a most um, exciting way, in the sense that really you would think that after years of dehumanization of Palestinians, uh, the besiegement of the Gazans over the course of a decade or more, you would think that their spirit would have been broken. You would think that they would have been pushed to the brink, pushed to the corner, yet they haven't. Here they are, tens of thousands of them are still descending upon the borders, still holding uh, this, this massive display of, of resistance that involves families, involves Palestinians of all political um, backgrounds, political backgrounds uh, in, in, in which um, not just, and this is what really been focused on not about kids throwing rocks at Israeli snipers who are not hesitating to shoot and kill them uh, just like that, but the, there are thousands of other people who are trying to really reanimate Palestinian unity, finding the common ground beyond the factionalism that has been an ailment in Palestinian society for many years. They are dancing they are cooking, they are reading, they are, they are discussing, they are engaging in political conversation. And this is happening every day since, since March uh, uh, 30th. And I, I, I believe that it will continue even after the set date of May 15th. The reaction of international Western leaders has, as per usual, when there is any wave of Israeli atrocities been conspicuous by its silence, there's been a decided lack of uh, outrage or political principle shown 
by Western leaders, which uh, again is is nothing new. How do you see the geopolitical dimension of things at present? Uh, we know that President Trump has been very bellicose in his support for Israel, and most particular in his commitment to moving the American embassy to Jerusalem. Europe remains uh, very much uh, kowtowing to the United States, as does our own uh, government. Do you see any prospect of a shift in political will on the international front in terms of placing pressure on the Israelis? Right. Um, I think um, historically, Palestinians usually arise when, when the situation really reaches a point uh, of, of where the, the, you know, it's defined by political despair. And I think we are living in this era right now. The fact that uh, the likes of Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, is so empowered by the international silence, by the Arabs, regional silence as well, not just Western, but Arabs as well, regarding what is happening in Gaza to the extent that the Israeli, the Israeli military issued a statement recently in which they negated or, or they offended uh, criticism of human rights groups saying, no human rights apply on the Gaza border because this is a state of war. And you would say, what, what a degree of arrogance that takes Israel to argue that even, even if we consent that this is children throwing rocks at Israeli snipers, you know, who are, uh, you know, a, a long distance away from them, even if we argue that this is a form of violence, but to declare that this is a state of war and to justify the killing of dozens and the wounding of thousands of people. But this empowerment comes because of international silence and because of the regional politicking of Saudi Arabia, of Egypt, of other countries in the region that no longer see Palestine and the Palestinian people and the as a party, the official American position so far has been Israel has the right to defend itself. But against whom? Against children, against women and men who are unarmed, raising flags, peacefully protesting. What kind of logic, what kind of school logic would allow this kind of statements to be made? Yet they get away with it because, again, there is no international censure, at least not significant enough that would really force Israel and the U.S. into a rethink. I think it is usually during these times that Palestinians realize that they have no one to count um, on but themselves. And this is really a moment of despair, political despair, maybe, but perhaps also a, a moment of political rebirth where the Palestinian nation can find its voice at last. The other dimension, of course, of the international situation is the Palestinian solidarity movement, which has been burgeoning in recent years. We've seen the rise of the boycotts, divestment and sanctions movement, which was an initiative by Palestinian civil society and has been taken up by many groups and institutions throughout the world. How important do you think the BDS campaign is? It does seem that a lot of Israeli government officials and propagandists and strategists are terrified of BDS. So speak to that. And I suppose also in connection with BDS, the importance of public opinion, perhaps even particularly American Jewish public opinion in the United States. Um, right. I think Israel has is, is very frustrated by the BDS movement. But they are, the reason that they are very frustrated is because strategically they have done this. They've had this blueprint from the very, very start, from 1948, and they are, they are working so very slowly 
with that blueprint in order for them to colonize the rest of Palestine, settlements, build walls, do whatever they please, while at the same time weakening Palestinian groups, uh, uh, trying to pacify the region, trying to normalize with the Arabs, and trying to legitimize themselves internationally in every possible institution, whether political institution or even European song and sports competition. And then here BDS comes, forcing uh, an entire new look or, or outlook on this subject, forcing a conversation. Israel expects that after 70 years, uh, for that conversation to be to resurface. And that is a, com- a conversation about Israel's legitimacy. Can you be a legitimate state if you are an occupation power? Can you be a legitimate state if you are a colonial settler state? Can you actually continue to present yourself as an icon of civilization and as, as a, 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 you know, as, as a, a Western, you know, civilized state that is going, is overhauling the entire Middle East region and making the world a better place, while at the same time, you are caging people behind apartheid walls and stealing their lands and declaring your superiority based on race and ethnicity. This kind of language, this kind of discourse has no place in the 21st century. And BDS is exposing the whole thing. So what I, you know, what, what I think people need to understand is that BDS is not about boycotting Israel per se, because there's always that stifling argument that says, well, no matter how much money BDS would cost Israel, the U.S. can flip the bill, no problem. They give Israel $3.8 billion a year. What kind of a difference would BDS make? It's not about money. It's not about Israeli hummus and Israeli dates and Israeli this and that. It is about the delegitimization of apartheid and of military occupation and forcing the conversation throughout the world. Now you hear the conversation back, despite of, of what the mainstream media has done to marginalize the conversation. It's now at universities, Churches, at uh, union groups, at stu- at, univer- and at, at in every part of life in in Western countries now, the conversation about Palestine and Israel is is on the on the agenda, and that's why Israel is is scared and feels very threatened by this because this is the kind of battle that they know full well they can't they can't they can't afford to lose, but they can't also win. Because this is not about carrying out uh, assassination or, 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 or putting out some sort of a, a charm offense uh, on, on Fox News. This is about something entirely different. It's about civil society all across the world. Hundreds of cities that are engaged in this conversation. How do you win this? And this is why the real fear and trepidation in the Israeli government. Your new book, The Last Earth, A Palestinian Story, published by Pluto Press, takes an unapologetically humanistic approach to the Palestinian struggle for justice and nationhood with dozens of interviews and testimonies by ordinary Palestinians living in the occupied territories, in the diaspora, in refugee camps, prisons and cities all around the world. What were you setting out to achieve with this book? I want to change the conversation. I want to reclaim the conversation on behalf 
of Palestinian refugees. I'm a refugee. I was born and raised in a refugee camp in Gaza. My family were expelled from their village in, bed, in, 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 in Israel, today's Israel, in historic Palestine, in 1948. And I tell you the truth, our voices muffled. Not just muffled in mainstream media. I mean, this is to be, you know, this is predictable. This is to be expected. But also muffled within the very circle that's supposed to speak for and to represent the Palestinian people. Um, the Palestinian narrative is not exactly a Palestinian narrative because the majority of Palestinians are refugees. The refugee struggle is, is marginalized, is discarded, is relegated. And we want to reclaim it because we can't fight for a cause in which the voices, the people who represent that cause are muffled. So, so this is why I feel like it is time for Palestinian historians, new Palestinian historians, to redefine the struggle for Palestine. And instead of speaking on behalf of the factions, instead of speaking you know, as a counter-narrative to the Zionist narrative, which again marginalized our narrative for such a long time, to get engaged in discussions about one state, two states, violence or nonviolence, why don't we let the people reclaim their position, their centrality in the Palestinian discourse? So it's, it's an attempt in this direction. I've written several books that really more or less try to champion that that particular idea but this last book the last earth has really been my most um, serious effort in the sense involved conversations with dozens of palestinians not just in the west bank and gaza but all over the world all pushing for the same narrative ultimately telling the same story from different points of view